You're listening to a TVO podcast. The following podcast contains coarse language, descriptions of violence, and sensitive themes which may not be suitable for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Unascertained. My saw partner's like, the guards all jumped on him. He couldn't breathe. And they were just, they were beating him up and smothering him. And he died. Solitary confinement is routinely used as the behavior management tool for people who are mentally ill. It breaks my heart, frankly. These are the kinds of incidents that reinforce just how easy it is for things to go tragically and fatally wrong if, if we don't do corrections right. I can bet my life on it. He would not attack them because every time I've seen them open this guy's door, he does not want them to even touch him. He's scared. He's terrified. Ambulance, what is your emergency? Hi, uh, I'm a nurse at Central East Correctional Center. We have an inmate with vital signs absent. Okay, VSA. Okay. Okay, so how old is the patient? Honestly, I just ran right to you. Okay. I can find out some more information. It's I'll an adult male, though. It is an adult male. Okay, and do you know what happened? Um, I'm not sure. Okay. We, I just arrived on scene. There's nurses everywhere, okay. officers, and vital signs absent. Okay, so CPR we're making CPR, they were doing compressions um, okay. as I was leaving. Okay, all right. We'll send them over. If you have any other info, you give us a call back, and I'm not going to give you instructions. I, yes, I will have um, lots of information prepared for the Perfect. attendants when they respond. Thank you very much. Thanks. It's December 15th, 2016, in the Central East Correctional Center, the jail in Lindsay, Ontario. What you just heard was an audio recording of a 911 call from the Kawartha Lakes Police Files. Jason B. Bow was the first paramedic on the scene, responding to that call for an inmate with vital signs absent. When he arrived, a jail nurse was performing CPR and using the jail's defibrillator on Suleiman Fakiri. Suleiman's body was apparently so sweaty, the nurses had trouble keeping the defibrillator pads attached. Bibo took over and began an IV drip, but Sully's heart wasn't beating. At 3.44 p.m., Bibo made a call to the Ross Memorial Hospital. Hi, I'm currently running a BSA. A 30-year-old gentleman at the Corrections Center. He's uh, incarcerated. Okay. He's putting up a bit of a stink earlier. They had to use some force on him. They pepper sprayed him twice. Okay. Um, that's really the only story I got. Uh, well, I just want to make sure there's no narcotics on board, right? Is that to cause an arrest? So there's there any chance of narcotics on board with him? He's been incarcerated. No, there's no chance of a narcotic overdose. No. Okay. So it's not that. And he's not diabetic? Not diabetic? No, he has no medical history. He's got a history of psychiatry, yes, schizophrenia. All right, and you guys are in the jail? I'm in a jail cell right now. You're in the jail cell. Okay, well, it doesn't sound like it's going to work out very well for this patient. I'm Yusuf Zine, and this is Unascertained. Suleiman Fakiri was pronounced dead in his jail cell at 3.47 p.m., I couldn't find many statistics of inmate deaths in Ontario jails, and there's a reason for that. The Correctional Services Oversight and Investigations Office, or CSOI, is the ministry division currently charged with investigating deaths in custody. But because they don't publicly release their reports, there's little actually known from their findings. Thanks to Howard Saper's report on corrections in Ontario, 
We do know that from 2007 to 2017, there were over 150 deaths in Ontario jails. Inmates who are incarcerated are at a higher likelihood of early death due to heart disease, drug overdose, and suicide. But Suleiman's case was different. His death was investigated by the Kawartha Lakes Police Service, or KLPS, a department that, in 2016, was made up of 41 sworn officers that served a population of over 75,000 people. They began their investigation almost immediately, interviewing inmates, correctional officers, and any jail staff who were near the scene. Well, in here, let's get you to sit over there in the purple seat. Sure. So we're being recorded, so the formality of it is the camera and the microphone. Just get you to introduce yourself. I'm Jason Bebo. I currently employed with City of Port Lakes as a paramedic. Okay. So, Mr. Bebo, we've asked you to come in to speak to us regarding an incident that occurred at the Central East Correctional Center on the 15th of December. Yeah. Eight days after Sully's death, Jason Bebo, the paramedic, was interviewed by Kawartha Lakes Police. You responded as a medic to that? I did. Okay, so... Um, here's a witness. What can you tell me? What did you see? Oh, just to start off, it was an unusual circumstance. They simply said that it's a gentleman that uh, was, was schizophrenic, I believe he said, and really not all was there, and he was acting out. They had to use physical force to get him from point A to point B, and they pepper sprayed him twice. This is the information I'm gathering on the way. I walked in and there was a lot, there was quite a number of people running the cardiac arrest. I just saw a couple of ladies down doing chest compressions. It was kind of chaotic, to be honest with you. So I needed to know what happened, what exactly happened here, why is he, you know, anybody witnessed it or, right. so the story, I had about five people starting to tell me at once and I couldn't, like, just stop. I need one person to tell me what, you know. I guess I got the same story that he had been, there had been physical force used on him. And I noticed he had like, like, look at the marks on his wrists and ankles, like from the, presumably the shackles or whatever. And uh, they said that he was fighting them and they had to use pepper spray a couple times. Okay, I got that. And then he was in a cell and he was calling for a nurse. Um, so I assumed he was in there by himself. Nurse, 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 and they said when they arrived, he was laying on the ground with no vital signs. Well, I'm not an expert in times of death or anything. He appeared to me that maybe he may have been there a bit longer than just, and as I said, I'm not an expert at it. I'm not gonna sit here and tell you that no one was there. He must have been there longer. I can't say that. But he looked pretty dead. Right. Jason says that when he tried to get the full story of what happened, there were conflicting accounts and I, I, one of the guards was kind of over overhearing what I was going on about. I was just packaging my stuff up. He piped up and says, well, wait a minute, no, he was never ever left alone. I said, well, I was, my understanding was that he was left alone in the cell. It was because there's somebody with him at all times. Said, so this was like a witness cardiac arrest and I was kind of starting to get wound up a little bit. The superintendent there started getting antsy and concerned and kind of like almost having attitude with me a little bit because I was asking all these questions 
I stopped her dead in her tracks, and I don't really care who you are at this point in time. I'm the vascular paramedic who just got a pronouncement for a 30-year-old man, and I needed a straight story, and I need to know what's going on. Yeah. So they definitely said that he was calling out for a nurse. Absolutely. Did anybody say to you, no, he never did do that? Yeah, the, this one guard at the end, when his peers pronounced and everything, he says, no, no, no. Oh, he was, wasn't left by himself. Now I can't say for sure whether or not he said that, you know, he did call out or didn't call out, I'm not sure. But the story I got for nine-tenths of the time that I was on scene, the story was that, is that he was in there by himself and was calling out for a nurse. Okay. And then when they arrived, he was, he was dead. Okay. Right. Give me two seconds. Sure. After Suleiman's death, the Fakiri family wanted people who knew the system and could get them answers. Hey, Edward. Good. Okay, so, so we're all set up. This is, this is very, uh, it's like a deposition. Fancy, huh? Yeah. yeah. And usually we're, we're the ones throwing paper and yeah, pens to sign yeah, on right? the bottom line. The law offices of Stockwood sit high above downtown Toronto. We're sitting in their massive boardroom, looking out at the CN Tower down in the financial district. Nader Hassan is sitting upright in his chair, and Ted Morocco is leaning back, more relaxed. In late 2016, the Fakiri family approached them to take on the case. There were a few unique things that jumped out here. This is Nader. Number one, you sometimes hear the guards or the government talk about Suleiman, and they refer to him as an inmate. He wasn't an inmate. He was someone who had undergone a mental health episode who the police arrested, and he was remanded to pretrial custody at the Central East. He wasn't supposed to be there. When they went before a justice of the peace for a preliminary bail hearing, justice of the peace said, find this man a hospital bed. He's not supposed to be there. That was an order from a court. Three days later, he was dead. So he wasn't an inmate who died in custody in a jail. He was a sick man waiting for a hospital bed. So the, yeah, the guards failed him for sure, but that system also failed him. Yeah, there is no dispute that Soleiman Fakiri was the recipient of force. That's Ted. And there's no dispute that he was pepper sprayed multiple times during the, the exchange. Uh, there's, there's simply no dispute about that. I guess the simplest way of saying there's, there's no dispute that a bunch of people in authority beat the defenseless man, and then he died. Nader is a constitutional and criminal lawyer, and Ted's area of expertise is in coroners, inquests, and public inquiries. Their combined experience made them well-suited for a case like this. In late 2016 and early 2017, they began communicating with the Kawartha Lakes Police Liaison Officer to see where they were at with the investigation, who they were interviewing, what video footage was available, and when the coroner's report would be ready. Throughout the month of January, the officer provided some updates on the investigation. Among some of their work included a forensic examination of the scene, a review of the evidence, and interviews with inmates and staff. But no actual findings were shared with the lawyers. They were told the police were behind in their investigation and still had more interviews to conduct. On January 17th, Nader and Ted learned about an inmate who was looking to provide information to the police about Suleiman's death. 
Anthony Ouellette, Sully Cell Range neighbor in Tuseg. The officer responded six days later, confirming that Ouellette had been interviewed. Still having learned very little, the lawyers urged the police to provide some more information to the family soon. On January 25th, the officer says they won't be able to conclude the case until they review the coroner's report, which wasn't released for another few months. And then, on January 31st, the lawyers are told that once all the interviews were complete, more information would be released to them. There are a few more updates after that, but then almost no details via email for six months. I asked Nader and Ted what they thought of a small police department taking on a huge case like this. Very odd. Should have never happened. Should have never happened. If it had been the local police force that had been responsible for killing Suleiman, it, it almost certainly would have been sent out to another force. Why they applied a different rule in this case when it was the local jail is, is a question you're going to have to ask them. I mean, this is a small town. The cops and the guards probably went to high school together. They worked together a lot. Uh, so absolutely, yes, we, we thought that from the get-go, we thought that uh, KLPS should not be the ones handling it. We asked Kawartha Lakes Police why they investigated this case, seeing that there could be a perceived conflict. They responded saying that since the Central East Correctional Center falls within their geographical jurisdiction, they are the ones that investigate all deaths that occur in that institution. On July 11th, 2017, the lawyers received the first crucial piece of information, the coroner's report. Instead of an explanation of what killed Suleiman, the death status was listed as unascertained. Yeah, every, everyone's used to seeing CSI, right? And on CSI, the coroner shows up and says, this person died about two minutes ago, and clearly it was a result of this, and I'm pretty sure that person over there is the one who did it. That's actually not how that particular science works in real life. How do you have this information and then arrive at, we don't know how he died? Unascertained doesn't mean there's no cause of death. It means there could be 10. And unless one of them stands out as more likely than another, we have to say it's unascertained. It does not mean that there's no cause of death. So you will encounter this in situations where someone is the subject of a beating. They undoubtedly endured injuries as a result of that beating, but none of the injuries in and of themselves on their own necessarily shows that they caused the death. So for example, here, there's no doubt his heart stopped. The question is, why did his heart stop? But I think if you ask anyone to look at that report, no one would dispute that well, there was an event, he was not sleeping peacefully. And as a result of the event, there again, undisputed, he became medically unresponsive and he never woke up again. So, unascertained is not to be mistaken for there's no cause of death here. The report is 56 pages long. It details all the bruises that covered Suleiman's torso, hands, feet, arms, and legs. There's a list of evidence that the coroner had including a reference to a CCTV video surveillance tape. From the description, it seems like everything that happened in the hallway is visible on this video camera, but what happened inside the cell cannot be seen. And then there are the photos of Suleiman, which are disturbing to look at. The injuries on his face are what strike me at first. There's a gash on his forehead, the one Sully's brother, Yusuf, saw before the burial. 
There are also bruises on his nose, head, ears, and neck. His hands, ears, and back are a dusty shade of purple. His wrists and ankles also have multiple deep cuts all the way around. It's not exactly the type of injuries that catch your eye. It's the sheer amount. Over 50 bruises, cuts, and lacerations. If you're restraining someone and it gets rough, it's only natural you're going to have some bruises and scars. But over 50 seems excessive. So where did these bruises come from? It wasn't possible for the coroners or the pathologist to show evidence of asphyxiation as a cause of death. Toxicology showed the presence of a drug called olanzapine in Suleiman's system, which is used to treat schizophrenia. But the levels weren't high enough to cause sudden death. His heart was slightly abnormal and mildly enlarged, but again, not enough to cause death. The coroner did say it was possible that the physical and emotional struggle, combined with the heart changes and the olanzapine, could have led to fatal arrhythmia, or heart failure. But that was just a theory. Now, you're going to have some cases where it's pretty obvious how the person died. You're going to have other cases where, again, I'd say like this one, how exactly they died could be a little bit more mysterious. And the doctor looking at it isn't going to try to pin it on one part or another unless it's medically apparent. They have to be very cautious. They're scientists. Despite the unascertained death status, Nader and Ted believed this wouldn't impact criminal charges. It's a medical document at the end of the day. But insofar as criminal, legal, moral culpability goes, it's a bit of a red herring. Because in a court of law, you, you do not need to know the precise scientific mechanism of the precise channel through which the death was caused if you know who caused it. For three more months after the coroner's report was released, Nader and Ted were still awaiting the results of the police investigation. You know, when a, when a police force takes this long to conduct an investigation... What it does, it also makes it more difficult for someone else down the road who's going to look at this fresh because leads go stale, witnesses move, people forget. And so they ultimately, they, they delayed justice. Finally, after more than 10 months, the Kawartha Lakes police completed the investigation. The conclusion, no grounds to lay any criminal charges. The case was closed. There was a lot that was strange with the KLPS investigation. I was told in a one-line email, we've concluded there are no grounds to lay criminal charges. They didn't promise an outcome. They can't promise an outcome. But the family was promised an explanation. Upon receiving that email, we made couple of calls. We sent back a couple of emails to the inspector saying, hey, this is not how you told us it was going to go down. And what do you mean there are no grounds to lay criminal charges? We both read the same post-mortem report. We're working with the same facts here. What do you mean there are no grounds to lay criminal charges? Have you ever experienced that before? Like, we have a relationship with the police and they are that short with you? Well, look, I mean, I, I, I practice mainly criminal defense, so I'm not, I'm used to the police not being on my side. But here I'm acting for the family of a victim 
of a homicide. I, I was expecting them to be a little bit more courteous. What irks me more is not the nature of the email. It's that they could have been led to this particular conclusion because it doesn't add up. Um, and as someone, I say this as someone who practices criminal law, to say that there are no grounds for criminal charges here, it, it absolutely makes no sense. The investigation was over. There was no meeting that took place with the Fakiri family or Nader and Ted, and the work of Coort the Lakes Police Service was done. We requested an interview with KLPS to ask more follow-up questions, but we were declined. Right after the investigation closed in October of 2017, Sergeant Tom Hickey, who's since become an inspector, did this radio interview on CBC's Metro Morning with Matt Galloway. This is the only interview we could find where Kawartha Lakes Police spoke out about the investigation in such detail. So, I want you to hear exactly what he had to say. Sergeant Tom Hickey is with Kawartha Lakes Police and joins us now. Sergeant, good morning. Good morning. Why were there no charges laid in Solomon Curie's death? Uh, the short answer is the evidence didn't lead up to charges, being wasn't sufficient enough to warrant charges. You know, that's a high threshold that we have to reach when we're conducting criminal investigations and laying criminal charges. You know, and you know, we've been very clear from the onset that there was a struggle that took place between Mr. Fakiri and the correctional officers, um, that the injuries that were described in the postmortem are consistent with a struggle like that. And But the fact remains that the report from the pathologist uh, deemed his cause of death to be unascertained and that the injuries he sustained uh, were not significant enough to cause his death. The, the coroner's report found that jail guards had beaten him and restrained him, that shortly before he died, between 10 and 20 guards entered his cell. Uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, in that report as well, he had more than 50 cuts, bruises, and other injuries caused by blunt impact trauma. Are we suggesting, are you suggesting, is the report suggesting that those injuries did not necessarily lead to his death? That's what the report says, yes. So were the beatings legally justified then? That that could be part of the decision, yes. That's correct. Well, I mean, you're the one who, who uh, is involved in this report. So you said that was the uh, short I'm answer that personally. there was... Okay. I, I'm, but I wasn't involved in the meetings with the Crown Attorney's Office, so I'm not privy to all the discussions that took place with them. But there was you gave us the short answer that it didn't meet that high bar. I'm just trying to, to figure out how, if, a, if somebody was beaten uh, by between 10 and 20 people, at least they're in his cell, uh, that the body has more than 50 cuts and bruises well, and other injuries, how that may not meet that threshold. Can you explain a little bit more about that? I guess the I, long I, answer I'm, that you were hinting at? I think I, I'm not sure that beaten is the correct term to use. There was a physical interaction. There's no doubt about that. You know, if the evidence suggested that there was a beating and that there was an assault that took place within the definitions of the criminal code, then, then that charges of that nature would be laid. But that's not the case. Do we know what the cause of death for Solomon Fakiri was? We don't, unfortunately. Why don't we know that? I don't have that answer, I'm sorry. You know, that's a, a question that would be better suited for the pathologist. I don't have that answer. Okay. It, um, the family of Solomon Fakiri and their lawyers say they haven't got answers as to why charges were laid. Um, that they got a letter, um, it expressed uh, condolences at the end of it, but it didn't actually explain why this happened. Why aren't they being given the reasons why nobody is being held responsible for his death? 
they've been told as much as we can tell them about the the investigation at this point. The unfortunate reality is that there's a, still a process that's taking place, and there is the possibility, the strong possibility that uh, I would suggest that there's going to be a coroner's inquest that results from this. So we have to preserve the integrity of that evidence, and we can't have it tainted by having it in the public domain, and that evidence will come out at the coroner's inquest. Do you understand their frustration in not knowing? I do. do. And so to them, what do you say in in light of that frustration? You know, I say that um, I am sympathetic to what they're saying, but we have to abide by the laws that allow us to release that information. Mm And we have to abide by the process. Um, and and but I I do understand their frustration with that process. One of the lawyers for the family has suggested that your police force is too close to this, and that the OPP or a different force should investigate. What would you say to that? Well, you know, I I, I think those are pretty serious allegations for them to make. But if they truly believe that you know we've been negligent or incompetent in our investigation, they should be filing a, a complaint with the Office of the Independent Police Review Director. You know, the the fact is we, we do have an investigation unit that works out of the jail. They are not the ones that investigated this. Our general investigators from our criminal investigations branch did. Um, and, um, you know, we believe we've been independent, fair in our investigation. According to Sergeant Hickey, the evidence the police gathered wasn't sufficient enough to warrant any charges. And he admits there was a physical interaction but says it didn't amount to a beating. He says whatever physical force was used could have been justified. But Kawartha Lake's police didn't want to release any more info until a coroner's inquest took place, so as not to taint any of the evidence. Ted Morocco was listening in to the interview and spoke on the air right after. Now, Ted, good morning to you. Good morning. Um, you were listening to what the sergeant from the Kawartha Lakes Police Service had to say. Why isn't that statement provided by the police? Why isn't what he said enough for the family? Well, let's start here. I mean, what he said this morning, that's the most I've ever heard about what they found. And more critically, what he refers to as a struggle uh, was, as you put it, a beating. The, uh, Mr. Fakiri was in shackles with a bag over his head. Uh, suffering impact injuries from upwards of 20 guards. That is not a struggle. That is a beating. Well, there, there, was, there, was, there, was, there, was, there was a struggle, though, that led to the incident, was there not? Uh, well, at the time that there was a supposed struggle, again, he was shackled. The only thing that changed was they put a bag over his head. How typical is it that a, a victim's family would actually be told why police wouldn't lay charges in a case like this? Well, it is typical that they would be told. What will happen is the police will bring the family in for a meeting. And they will explain to them what their brief has uncovered. And they will explain to them not necessarily every intimate detail of the investigation, but they will give them some insight into why they're making a decision one way or another. That is not uncommon. We were not given such a meeting. He said, uh, as you heard, that um, a coroner's inquest is likely to be called, that the integrity of the evidence needs to be preserved and not put into the uh, public sphere. Is that not uh, the correct thing to do if we have the sense that a coroner's inquest is coming? Well, again, you can still have that meeting with the family, even in the, with the possibility of a coroner's inquest then coming. And when we made the request for information from the police, we were told, oh, just make a Freedom of Information Act request. So this is not a case of them trying to keep their information out of the public view. This is something different. I don't understand why they wouldn't just sit down with us and help us understand what they uncovered in the course of their investigation. So that would be perfectly proper. What are the questions that you still have? Is it just about why charges weren't laid or what led to that process of, of not laying charges? I don't know what they've done. 
I haven't been told who they interviewed, what those people said, what evidence they found at the scene. There's supposedly a video. I haven't been permitted to see it. So I have all kinds of questions. I don't have any idea what they've done over the last 11 months. And at the conclusion of those 11 months, they've concluded there's no grounds to lay a criminal charge, which, again, is very strange given the findings of the postmortem report. So I have a ton of questions. You've called for the OPP to launch its own investigation. Why? Well, someone needs to look at this again. Whether that happens in the course of the coroner's inquest with another service conducting the coroner's investigation or another police service stepping in first and reviewing the KLPS's work, it needs to be looked at again. Do you believe that the Cortha Lakes Police Service is too close to uh, this story? I don't know. They won't tell me anything. All I know is I'm being stonewalled. And when you get stonewalled, it makes you very suspicious. Nader and Ted wanted to know what happened during this investigation. They were sure the answers were in the police files. So they made a Freedom of Information, or FOI, request, which gives anyone the right to request information held by public authorities. We made the FOI request. Cortha Lakes Police Service refused it. We asked Cortha Lakes Police about that. They told us that at the time this request was made, the internal investigation by corrections officials was still ongoing. When it was over, those materials could be released. Eventually, Nader and Ted appealed their request, which was approved, and got their hands on the case files. They were finally able to piece together what they believed really happened to Suleiman. I think one of the things that stuck out to me when I first read about the case and when the file material started to come in was the sheer number of officers involved in this altercation that took place. And when you have deaths in institutions, you know, sometimes there's one guard versus one inmate or there's two inmates versus each other. Um, or sometimes the inmate is alone in their cell. This was Mr. Fakiri in this little tiny segregation cell, a cell that is really intended for one person. And there was somewhere between six and probably 10 people in this room applying force to this restrained man on the floor. That stuck out to me. The report included police notes, emails, photos, transcripts, witness statements, audio, and video recordings from the investigation. But there were also a few things missing from the files. Remember that CCTV video surveillance tape from the hallway? The one mentioned in the coroner's report? That was not included. Also missing were any official statements by guards or correctional staff. We know that they were interviewed by police and even had the interviews recorded on video, but those tapes, transcripts, and statements were missing from the Fakiri family's copy of the report, and all of their names were redacted. One video that was included, that you heard earlier, was a police interview with the paramedic, Jason Bebeau. What was interesting about him is his statement that when he got on the scene, it appeared that Suleiman had been dead for some time. That was, that was an important statement. I mean, it begs the question, what was going on during that time? And why did it take so long? It's not like he, he expired in his cell at nighttime while every, he was sleeping and everyone else was sleeping and they discovered him in the morning. So why is it taking so long to get the paramedics there? That's not something we know the answer to yet. After speaking with Nader and Ted, we decided to go back and take another look at the police files. Based on what we read in the report, we were able to piece together a more detailed timeline 
of what happened in that cell. On the morning of the 15th, staff arrive at Suleiman's cell in Segregation Unit 2. By 1 p.m., he's put in a wheelchair and taken away wearing nothing more than his boxer shorts and blankets to cover him. Suleiman is transferred to Segregation Unit 8. He's taken to the shower on that range. At 1.15 p.m., he enters the shower. When the guards try to get him out, Suleiman refuses. He's throwing shampoo and spraying water at the guards. A welding shield is put up to protect the guards. At 1.30 p.m., the supervising officer calls the unit's deputy superintendent, requesting assistance from the crisis intervention team. Also known as ICET, they're the officers who are specifically trained in moving violent and non-violent inmates. They look like a SWAT team, wearing black body armor, helmets, and face shields. The request for ICET to take over the situation was denied. The officers are advised to try and continue to manage Suleiman by themselves. The attempt to get Suleiman out of the shower lasted for an hour and a half. A psychologist from the jail's mental health unit is requested and arrives to assist. They offer him crackers and peanut butter, which calms him down. At 2.50 p.m., Suleiman's hands are cuffed to the front through the shower door hatch, and he's left in that position for approximately one minute. During that time, the officers try to figure out what to do. Since Isit was not on their way, and after a long and exhaustive ordeal in the showers, they begin preparations to transfer Suleiman themselves. It appears in the police report that at some point, one of the officers said, quote, I'm moving him. If you don't want to, then fuck off. He's escorted down the hall to his cell by five correctional officers. A sixth guard joins, and this seems to escalate Suleiman's behavior. Suleiman starts resisting the efforts of the guards and spits in their direction. According to the police report, one officer attempts to give him an open-handed strike, but misses. They arrive at a cell while the struggle continues and pepper spray is deployed. The guards are then able to get him into the cell. We know that this struggle in the hallway was captured on the CCTV camera, but everything that takes place inside the cell at this point was not captured. Once inside, they get Suleiman to the ground while he tries to get up. He attempts to strike the officers with his hands cuffed and also to spit and bite at them. Officers deliver body and knee strikes that ground Suleiman. Suleiman continues to try and get up, but is taken down. He is pepper sprayed for the second time by the same officer. A code blue is now called, which is an emergency call for any available correctional officers to come help. About 20 to 30 guards show up, some tapping each other out of the struggle as they were exhausted. At this point, a new supervising officer arrives and takes command of the situation. Officers place leg irons around Suleiman's ankles and a spit hood over his head, which is a mesh fabric device to prevent someone from spitting, biting, or transmitting bodily fluids. The supervising officer formulates a plan to begin removing the correctional officers from the cell. Suleiman eventually calms down and is told the handcuffs would be placed behind his back. He is then cuffed to the rear. The guards slowly leave his cell and lock the door. 
leaving Suleiman handcuffed, lying on his stomach, face down. At this point, there is some confusion. A supervising officer thought that Isit was on their way to remove the cuffs and place Suleiman in a recovery position, which means being placed on your side to keep your airways clear and open. But Isit is not on their way. Suleiman is left alone in the cell until one of the officers looks through the window and notices he isn't breathing. They open the cell door and call for medical staff. Nurses arrive while 911 is called. At 3.47 p.m., Suleiman Fakiri is pronounced dead. After Suleiman's death, Kortha Lake's police arrived at the jail to begin conducting interviews to find out what happened. According to the police report, several of the correctional officers exercised their rights to not speak and didn't give any statements that day. The next day, they interviewed other inmates on the range. Most of them said they didn't see what happened but could hear the commotion. The few that did see something found it strange that it was the guards who moved and restrained Suleiman, and not Iset, who were trained to do that. Some inmates were yelling at the guards, saying, You should have waited for Iset. On December 19th, police tried to interview the correctional officers, but on the way, they learned that a majority of them were meeting for lunch that afternoon, and then meeting with their lawyers right after. Two days later, a lawyer representing the guards calls one of the police investigators to set up the interviews. But there was also a note from the lawyer requesting that no one be arrested between December 24th and January 2nd. On December 22nd, police interviewed the involved correctional officers with their legal counsel present. None of those statements have been made public. Whether he was asphyxiated, whether the beating caused an excited delirium and to cause his heart to palpitate in strange ways, that can't be determined with certainty. Here's the opinion Nader and Ted did determine with certainty. But we know that it was the beating that led to one of those things. So we know that it was the guards who caused him to die. In criminal law, that's a homicide. You do something, you do intentional actions to cause someone else's death, that is homicide. The police's account doesn't necessarily show how Suleiman died, and I have a tough time wrapping my head around the idea that he was beaten to death. After all, there's no reference to a beating by the police in their reports. So how is it possible for the lawyers to have that much conviction about something we have no evidence of? When we started to do a bit more of our investigation, including working with a couple of private investigators we worked with, we then learned that there was an eyewitness right, uh, who was in the cell across from Suleiman. Someone else was there that day. Someone who wasn't included in any witness statements. In a cell across from Suleiman, an inmate named John Thibault got a front row seat to what he describes as a vicious beating. Later, Thibault was asked by Kortha Lake's police officers if he had witnessed anything. The idea that you would approach prisoners in their cells in a public portion of a jail and, you know, knock on the door and say, hey, did you see anything that happened yesterday? Well, of course they're going to say no. And we learned that when Kortha Lake's police service went to interview him, he told them, I'm a dead man if I give you an interview while I'm inside while I'm locked up, but I'm getting out soon. 
and as soon as I get out, I will speak with you. He, he said that? He said that to them, and he told us he said that to them. And there's annotations in the police officer's notebook to that effect. Wow. They closed the case day before he got out, two days before? It was shortly before he was set to be released. Thibault's eyewitness testimony was never included in the 10-month-long investigation. And as a result, the coroners had no idea it existed. I went back into the police report to look for any reference to a John Thibault. The reason I couldn't find his name the first time is because it was only scribbled in a few police notebook entries. The handwriting is difficult to make out, but one of the officers does acknowledge that Thibault witnessed something and wanted to speak with them when he was released from jail. But there is no official statement anywhere in the report from him. I reached out to the Kortha Lakes police to ask why a statement was never collected from Thibault but they declined to comment. Hi there. Uh, I'm uh, looking to get a hold of uh, one of your workers. His name is John Tebow. I'm just looking to get in touch and just wondering if I could speak to someone to uh, connect us. Uh, That'd be great. Uh, My number is... We tried for months to track down Tebow. I couldn't help but think if Tebow really did witness a beating... Did that mean the police account wasn't true? Shortly after the Kawartha Lakes Police investigation closed, an internal investigation by the Ontario Ministry took place. When it concluded around the summer of 2018, there was another development. Four Lindsay jail staff were fired. Two captains, one deputy, and one officer. Several others also received 20-day suspensions. A local newspaper called the Peterborough Examiner picked up the story on August 2, 2018. The article confirmed that the firings were, quote, in connection with Suleiman's death. We asked the Ministry of the Solicitor General what were the specific reasons why they were fired, but they declined to comment. So, clearly here... Things went badly, uh, but I don't think this is one of those cases where everybody's standing around saying this all went according to plan and all procedures were followed. You don't fire people if they did what they were supposed to do. Yeah, so no one's saying we did what we were supposed to and this all went the way it was supposed to and just, you know, stuff happens. I think there's an acknowledgement that this went woefully wrong. Nader and Ted told me a lot about the case. But there were still so many unanswered questions. The local police department did not lay any charges. But something clearly went wrong. Wrong enough that people were fired, and the government won't say why. And then there's the eyewitness, John Thibault. I had to find him. Hello? Hello, it's John Tebow calling. Next time on Unascertained. He's fighting for his life. He was just trying to get away from him. And they were not letting him get away. They were not letting him get away. Wasn't happening. Not that day. I've seen a lot of messed up stuff in jail, but I've never seen anything like that. Unascertained is written and produced by me, Yusuf Zin, and Kevin Young. Kevin Young is also our audio engineer. Our story editor is Michelle Shepard. Our intern is Selena Gallardo. 
Our legal counsel is Willa Marcus. Katie O'Connor is our producer for TVO Podcasts. The executive producer of Digital for TVO is Lori Few. The executive for Current Affairs and Documentaries for TVO is John Ferry. Metro Morning with Matt Galloway Interview, courtesy of CBC Licensing. Theme song and music by Blue Dot Sessions. Unascertained is produced by Innerspeak and TVO.